Welcome to the Central City Podcast. I'm Joe Graves, a pastor at Central City Church, and uh, excited to have you with us. Um, we're changing a few things on our podcast, so I wanted to let you know that. Um, we've started sharing our testimonies, our faith stories, every week in church, and we've decided to include these as part of our podcast so that you can hear um, real people talk about uh, their relationship with God in real ways. So at the beginning of the podcast, you'll hear a brief story, about four or five minutes, and then after that, we'll get into the sermon for the week and uh, whatever series we're in. So thanks for listening, and we hope that God meets you during this time. My name is Ryan Mills, and I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I'm going to jump right into the third grade, because I feel like that's kind of where things start. But um, my parents started to be off and on, argue a lot, and uh, would split up and get back together. Um, Due to this many factors, uh, my family had to move up to Lewis Center, Ohio, uh, where we were jumping around place to place, renting different places. Um, During the years leading up to my middle school, my family didn't practice any sort of religion. Um, And I had started going to Olentangy schools where I didn't know anyone, didn't have any friends. Um, Yeah. I ended up making a new friend. His name was Trevor. Um, Just kept annoying me about going to church. And I really wasn't into the whole veggie tales or, you know, preacher screaming at you type things. It just wasn't my thing. And that was my perception of church. So... um, one day he invited me to a concert that they were having there, and uh, it was like this little church off Cheshire Road, and ended up going and having a good time, and um, started going to youth group. And so things kind of went on, and we decided that, um, sorry, I was making uh, youth group like a every Sunday event, and I decided that I wanted to start learning guitar and playing bass, and so... I started doing that. Um, We ended up doing a middle school worship band, and we also had a high school worship band. And the high schoolers were like the ones that you always wanted to be. And um, so we always uh, started a middle school worship band where we actually um, did like a punk rock style, um, Reliant K style, like worship music. And basically, it was just speed up the tempo and praise God. So, um, the other thing was, is that, like, I, I really liked that youth group. Um, the youth minister was extremely, like, non-judgmental, very relatable, and just, like, his sermons were things that, you know, us kids and young adults could just really sort of understand, and said it in a manner in which wasn't preachy, I guess. Um, so, with that being said, um, as my faith started to sort of grow, I started going to this youth group, or this uh, summer camp, um, where I became more and more involved, and um, that was each summer, it was a week, um, it was a camp led by youth, and um, uh, it was coordinated, and it was planned throughout the year. Um, I ended up being one of those um, youth, uh, youth leaders. Um, as a youth. Um, I ended up meeting my wife at the time um, through that youth group, and not at the time, sorry. I ended up meeting my eventual wife at this youth group, and um, we started dating. I'm I'm butchering this. I'm so sorry. 
Um, I'm used to a guitar. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, that, that's, that youth camp actually just sort of changed my life. And um, I ended up going back as an adult counselor um, and started sort of shifting my focus towards, um, as I got into like my 21 years, um, I started focusing more towards um, youth ministry, sorry. And so um, during that time, um, I, I sort of wanted to give back and give sort of experiences that I had um, and like things that um, people that I had looked up to when I was a kid and wanted to sort of provide that. And so what was brilliant about it, or what was great about it was, is my eventual wife, she um, became a youth minister at a church um, where we were both able to sort of give back in that ministry. So. Um, during that time, um, I was also doing a worship band um, where we were doing um, random gigs for churches that uh, would ask us to come play. And um, so music has always been a big part of my life. And so I've, I've really enjoyed that. After about 10 years in my relationship, um, we were about six years married, um, and about two years of struggles, we ended up getting a divorce. I wanted to fix things, she didn't, um, and I had sort of suspected some infidelities on her side, um, to which I later found out to be true. Um, she actually started seeing my best friend. Um, it was sometime during this dispute in my marriage that I realized that I needed to seek help and I needed to seek counseling, and um, so I did so. Um, which was sort of hard because um, I think I've always struggled with depression, anxiety. Um, I also have ADHD and executive function disorder. And so um, it's sort of been overdue. Um, I always sort of struggled with the uh, I'm a man and, you know, I'm those, those sort of toxic masculinity type things. And so um, I ended up finding a counselor that didn't work. and. Could have been discouraging, but um, I ended up finding another one that I ended up relating to really well, and we got along and sort of started working through some stuff. Um, and so another thing I've discovered, sort of always new, um, but sort of growing up in a conservative church, um, conservative family, um, is that I was actually a part of the, or was, is, am, a part of the LGBT community. Um, I apologize because I'm going to butcher the abbreviations and not say it right. Um, I lost a lot of friends um, during this divorce and the separation. I also made a lot of new ones, and um, most of the part, for, for, for most of it, I sort of felt alone. Um, didn't have a lot of people to lean on, and um, I think this is something that I still sort of struggle with is um, finding people to trust. And so um, I had ended up finding out that my ex-wife had, um, where we came from a liberal church, had started to sort of say some negative things about um, my involvement and my being a part of the LGBT community. and sort of hurt, and so um, I guess since that time, um, 
I've had some ups and downs. Uh, I've sort of started to figure out what it is my passions are and my passions alone. Um, I've actually ended up discovering through my current girlfriend that um, we're both, or she was a big crew fan and uh, growing up as a kid I was into soccer and I loved playing it and um, so I've been going to crew games and I love the crew now all over again, go crew. Um, I also um, still love music, continue to play it, not so much recently. Um, but uh, I also love to travel. I've actually traveled across the country. One of the things I didn't get to do a lot up until my divorce was I've traveled across the country multiple times and seen things that I've never thought I'd ever see before. And so I'm actually getting ready to take a trip next week and I'm just super excited about it. Um, other thing, I'm, I'm in uh, a management role at my job. Wasn't ever really successful anywhere that I put my, uh, into my career. Um, I've been really sort of focusing on making sure that if I've made a mistake, what can I do to fix it and what part did I play in, in this and how do I move forward? Um, one of the things, so the last part is, you know, how did I come to be a part of Central City? Um, I guess during my divorce, I was at a different church um, in between this and um, where my wife goes, um, ex-wife. Um, but uh, I was playing with Ryan at a previous church, and that church ended up sort of starting to merge with my ex-best friend. And so Ryan had asked me to come play bass one time when we were back at the practice space, I call it. But um, we, I ended up playing and wasn't really thinking too much about finding this in my home. Um, and then Joe's sermon was just something that I was sort of like, it sort of gave me that first youth pastor vibes, like where it was like very relatable, very sort of casual and, um, you know, someone that wasn't up here on this pulpit thing and, you know, you're all down there. So, um, you know, I've, I've just I've really appreciated that. I've, I've really appreciated the relationships that I've found here. Um, I really appreciate that. I'm sure none of you are judging the fact that I'm sweating up here. Um, but... Really, honestly, um, in my ADHD ramble that I'm up here talking about, uh, you know, this is really just a fraction of, of my life and um, things that I've experienced. You know, I'm, you know, I'm still broken, not perfect. I'm still a child of God. Most importantly, I'm 32 years old, and I'm still trying to figure out and understand, you know, what this life and what this my purpose is, and I think that's okay. So, um, again, thank you guys. I appreciate it. And the end. Uh, we are going to be finishing up our little series this week called Horrible Bible Stories. And uh, we've done a series like this similar a couple years ago called Stranger Theology, and we focused on kind of more supernatural. We, we looked at a ghost story in the Old Testament. It was a lot of fun. So when I came up with this series, I was like, this will be a lot of fun too, which was a silly thing to think about because looking at a ghost story is not the same as looking at horrible 
Bible stories. And so we're going to finish it by looking at what some say is one of the worst Bible stories in the Bible. So that's where we're headed. But I want to let, remind you, um, a couple weeks ago, we looked at a story in the book of Judges. And Judges was a season in the period of Israel's history where they didn't have a king. They were still kind of figuring out what it meant to be a nation. And these judges would rise up. And some of them would serve as judges in the sense that they would meet with people in, in, in arbiter d- debates and disagreements. But sometimes they also were military leaders, more like generals, but they, the term was judge. And so these leaders, these local tribal leaders would rise up. And we looked at a story of a woman judge. Her name was Deborah. And then eventually we looked at the story of Jael. And that was one of our whole horrible stories where she took a tent peg and she, you know, put it through a hard surface, if you remember the story. Yeah. I mentioned in that sermon that the book of Judges um, follows along this trajectory of how women interact with society and how that's a barometer for how the nation of Israel was doing. I'll just give you a a brief reminder and and a few more details. So you had Deborah. So here is this woman leader. She has capacity to make decisions for herself and for other people and for men. The men listened to her. She was the leader. And Jael, who's this powerful, perceived as a powerful warrior, who's able to take the life of a man. So you had these women who had the ability to make decisions for themselves and act powerfully or with great strength. The next story that involves a woman uh, goes downhill. It's the daughter of a man. We're not really told her name, just that she's the daughter of this man, uh, which is probably telling to the story. And the man does this weird thing where he says, you know, God, if this happens, I'll sacrifice the next person I see. Just to, like, that's a weird ultimatum to throw out. But this is how the story goes. Well, his daughter is the next person he sees when this thing happens. Long story short, he sacrifices his daughter to God. So you can see how the treatment of women is going downhill. The next story of a woman in Judges is uh, Delilah. If you remember the story of Samson, that might have been one that made it into Sunday school class if you grew up in the church. Samson with the long hair, and he's powerful, and this woman comes. And Delilah is really a story of two things. One, she, she starts out as an object of affection. So as an object, here's this beautiful woman, and Samson says, I want her. So you can already see how the relation, the role that women have in society is changing. And the, you go from Deborah, who's a leader, to now an object of affection. And then she happened to be a foreigner. She was an Israelite. And so the other foreign leaders purchase her to enact vengeance against Samson. So they pay her money and bribe her and convince her to go against Samson. So you can see how the trajectory moves. And that takes us, as we kind of follow this trajectory of the treatment of women and judges, to the unnamed woman of Judges 19, where this woman is raped and mutilated. Here's a commentary uh, a a scholar has to say about this. Um, He says, this general decline from women as the subject of independent action to women as the object of men's actions and desires in the book of Judges coincides with the gradual decline in health of Israel's social and religious life during the judges' era. That decline culminates with the atrocity of rape and murder committed against the Levites' concubine in Judges 19, certainly one of the most brutal and violent scenes in all of Scripture. I'll paraphrase. He says, and I agree, that women moving from a place of the ability to make decision and have their own action to a place of actions being done against them without the ability to have volition is a barometer then and I would say even now 
And then he calls this next passage that we're going to look at a truly horrible story. One of the most brutal, violent scenes in all scripture. One of the most violent scenes of all scripture is the center of our faith. Jesus dying on a cross. It truly is a violent story. You know, uh, there was a couple movies made about it, and some were pretty accurate, and it's terrible. This, this story we're going to look at today, I would say, is probably worse. And that's, that's where we're headed. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to be just let you know some of these passages I'm going to put up on the screen like I did a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to read them out loud. You can then choose to read them or not because they are pretty graphic. Um, but a lot of it I will be reading and walking us through. So Judges chapter 19, of course, you can read it on your own. And if you're listening to the podcast right now later, um, obviously you can't look at the screen. So uh, this, uh, there'll be a little, the, the entire uh, passage of scripture will be on our website page for the podcast. So Judges 19 verse 1, it starts like this. This is a common phrase for the story of Judges. It says, Judges 19.1, In those days, Israel had no king. Now, they believed very simply that if we had accountability, if we had a good ruler, these things wouldn't happen. Right? And this is a longing that I think a lot of us have. If there was just accountability for the people who are able to do terrible things, then this type of stuff wouldn't happen. Now, the reality is, is that a king wouldn't have helped them. A king wasn't going to help the people of Israel because kings like David, you know, as amazing as David was in Scripture, we know that David also objectified women and engaged in violence against her husband and got him murdered. So a king, a normal human king, probably wasn't going to be that much better. But what this was pointing to is the lack of accountability. What they really wanted was for those in power and for those who can use power to abuse others to be held accountable. What they wanted was, you know, the Me Too movement of their own. They wanted justice. And they said at this point there was no justice because there was no king in Israel. There was no one with the, who was right and good who could stand up to people in power and say, this is wrong. So this is what happens as a result going on. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine this is a derogatory term. When I read it, I, I think of a lot of different things. Um, let, let me be very clear what it, what it meant culturally. Wife. Just not the head wife. So, you, you know, culturally, and this was common in the Old Testament amongst even so-called great leaders in the Hebrew faith, you would have many wives. You'd have multiple wives. And a concubine would be a lesser wife. But technically speaking, in many ways, it was still a wife. So he took an additional wife that wasn't in charge of the household. That's kind of what it's saying here. And he took her from Bethlehem in Judea. So this is a Bethlehem wife. Uh, some Bethlehem's close to Jerusalem. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem. Now this is, this right here, friends, I'm going to get a little upset here today, and I apologize, but this right here is at the root of the problem. This verse right here. She was unfaithful to him. This is a version of interpretation. Predominantly male translators, of course, interpreting this way. And, and I've often compared different translations. This is one way to study the Bible. And, and two translations I like to read and study are NIV and NRSV. These are two great translations. If you put these together, look how drastically different these are, specifically the underlined, underlined words. In NIV, the first one, it says she was unfaithful to him. In Judges 19 in the NRSV, it says his concubine became angry with him. Whew, those are very different, don't you think? 
Here's what's happening. The Hebrew says that it, the word is she committed adultery or she was unfaithful. But you have to understand it's a little more complicated than that because women couldn't divorce their husbands. And, and if you didn't know this, it wasn't until like the 18th century, 19th century, that women could divorce their husbands in most countries in the world. Like, I was reading some of the history of women divorcing husbands in Great Britain. And even when women were allowed to, the rules around her were much more stringent and much more complicated than the rules around men divorcing their wives. So this, at this time, it was unheard. Women did not divorce their husband. In fact, so much so that if a woman left her husband, it was considered committing adultery against him. Okay? So the word here is she committed adultery against him, but culturally, and given the rest of the context that we'll get to here in a little bit, we realize that what really happened is she left him. And we'll find out later that it's clear that he's the one at fault. And this changes how we read the story. It doesn't make it any worse or better at the end, but it does change the way we perceive this unnamed woman. She is experiencing something that she has to run away from. And she goes back to Bethlehem to her father's house. She goes back to get help. She runs away. So we can already tell something about their relationship with this guy. It's not starting well. They are at odds. She would prefer not to be with him. She would prefer to leave. And so we can kind of infer quite a bit about their relationship, can't we? And here's what happens next. Then, Judges 19.3, then her husband set out after her to speak tenderly to her and bring her back. So we know right there that's the context that if she had done something wrong, he wouldn't be speaking tenderly to her, especially in this culture. Do you see what I'm saying? So we know now in the context that if he's trying to like, I'm sorry, it won't happen, you know, speaking tenderly to her, we know that he's actually in fault in this situation. That's what the NRSV translates it the way that it does. Because it's like, okay, if he's speaking tenderly, then he must have done something to scare her away. We don't know what he did, but it was enough for her to run back to her parents. So he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. When he reached her father's house, now, now pick this up. This gets even worse. The girl's father saw him and came with joy to meet him. Oh. When this uh, husband arrives at this woman's father's house, the father receives him with joy. Oh, the father's so, oh, thank God. Odd, you came back. We thought she had messed up so much that you would never want to see her again. Do you see? Have you heard this? Do you see this? He, in other words, her father is not an advocate for what this woman wants, for what she desires, for what she's trying to accomplish in her life. Everything, including her family, set up against her. Now, I'll talk a little bit about domestic violence here. I wouldn't be surprised, and I've heard enough antidotes to suggest this, that there's a correlation between women who stay in abusive relationships and their family encouraging them to. Oh, just try to make it work. He's a good guy. Give him another chance. Next verse. His father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days, so they ate and drank, and he stayed there. You know, the father thinks he's great, and this is actually almost humorous if it wasn't so painful. You know, he's a good drinking buddy is what we find out. Um, 
Who wouldn't want to be married to him? We have so much fun with this guy. Now, this is obvious, but it needs to be said. And, 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 and guys, I just want to just pause real quick for the guys in the room. True strength, when we talk about this topic, is not getting defensive. Okay? So let's just be honest here. You don't have to get defensive. Um, the, the speaker who's coming next week to talk about domestic violence said it like this. She'll probably say it next week as well. Um, you know, men can experience domestic violence. Okay? So I'm not ignorant of that. And not, uh, most men aren't abusers. The other side of that coin is most abusers are men. Okay? So that's just reality. You know, but we don't have to become defensive. But here's this guy, um, and this is what needs to be said. It's very obvious because this kind of logic is often used against women. It's simply this. Just because a guy has lots of friends and is well-respected by other men doesn't mean he's a good husband. Okay? I know that that seems obvious, but, man, that's something that gets, like, that is still a very contemporary idea. Just because a guy is friends with other men and is respected by other men does not mean he's being a good husband. It's obvious, but it's, but it's important. Because here's what we're going to see in this verse. This guy was well-respected by his dad. Put up the next slide. I'm not going to read all these verses. Um, I will, uh, if I was so ambitious, I, I would sing the, uh, the song version of this. It goes a little bit uh, like this. Uh, Baby, it's cold outside. I really can't stay. Baby, it's cold outside. I got to go away. Baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been, you know that song where the, the guy's like, you should stay for a little longer. And the girl's like, well, I should probably go. People are expecting me. That's what's happening in Judges 19 in this verse. The, the husband who would come to get his wife back, his concubine back, is like, we should probably go. And the dad is like, oh, have one more drink. (laughs) And they do this for days. That's why there's so many verses here. Like, I'll read just one section of it right at the end. You know, they're about to leave, and he says, look, the day has worn on until almost evening. Spend the night. See, the day has drawn to close. Spend the night here and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow we can get up early for the journey and go home. And this happens for multiple days where the dad's just like, this guy's so much fun to have around. So just stay a little longer. Well, from there, they actually do leave. They end up, and they leave, and they end up, and I'm going to skip a few verses. They end up in a, in the, to the, a small town near Bethlehem. Because they are hanging out with their dad so much, they don't leave in the morning. And uh, they get there late at night. It gets dark uh, because they left so late. And they end up in the square of a place where you shouldn't end up and stay up at night. And this old man comes up. They're hanging out at this uh, fountain in the middle of the square of this little village. And he sees them, and he invites them. He says, oh, man, you really shouldn't sleep outside, not here. Alluding to some sort of danger. He's like, this is not a safe place for you to stay. So they go to this old man's house. So they're on their way home. It gets dark. They get invited to someone's house. And this is what happens. Verse 22. While they're enjoying themselves, once again, having a good old time with this guy, the men of the city, a perverse lot, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house so that we may have intercourse with him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man, my guest, do not do this vile thing. Now, this is absurd and crazy, and I don't fully understand what's going on, but these men in this particular village find out a stranger has come, and they're like knocking on the door saying, Send him out. We want him. The master of the house, this is 
appropriately so, is this is inappropriate. So, so, so far, so good. Like he's saying, this is wrong. But it goes downhill from here. I'm going to put the next verse up. Uh, I'm not going to read it, but if you want to, feel free. Uh, this uh, next section, I will say, displays some homophobia, sexual perversion, rape, violence, and gore. So consider yourself warned. Verse 24, this is what happens next. The old man continues talking to these men, and here's what he says. No, go back. Keep that one up. Thank you. As you reflect on this passage, for those who read it, here's why this is still relevant today. The worth we attach to a person directly impacts the grievousness of sins done against them, still today. If a suburban mom is killed, there'll be national news coverage. But the homeless individual who died last night right here on our streets probably didn't even make the local news. The worth we attach to a person directly impacts the way we view the sins done against them. And so they say, you know, don't do this terrible thing to this man, because not only was he a man and of greater worth in that society, but it's also taboo, which added additional, like, grievousness to the sin. But go ahead and take my daughter. She's basically just property anyways. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's, that's how this played out. So here's what they propose to do, but here's what happens. I'm going to put up the next verse. Once again, I'm not going to read it. You're welcome to read it. It is a little small. My apologies. You can also look it up later. Verses 25 to 26. In short, they rape her all night long. And the man finds her in the morning. Next verse, in the morning, her master got up, opened the doors of the house, and went. And when he went out to go his way, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with, his hands on the, with her hands on the threshold, which is a particularly just heartbreaking detail, you know, trying to get back in. And he says, get up, he said to her. Real nice guy. Great with the boys, right? Oh, stay another day and have a drink. Get up, he said to her. We are going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man set out for home. The story doesn't end there. I'm going to skip a slide. I don't have time for it today. The story gets worse. If you want to see what happens next, uh, you can read it in Judges 19. Um, it actually gets crazier. So you can go ahead and yeah, take, go past that. I, I want to end by saying this. I, I was really nervous about preaching this story. Uh, maybe this isn't the place. You know, can people handle it? Will someone get hurt in the process? Will I say the wrong thing? Will it create more questions than answers? 
And, and, and in preparing the sermon series, I realized something. This story still happens. There are still in this world abusive spouses, men and women, mostly men though. There are still unsupportive families. Rape still happens. Extreme violence, which if you read the rest of the story, is extreme violence. Just It's a horror story is what happens next. Extreme violence still happens. In fact, according to the uh, Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, on average, there are 463,634 victims aged 12 or older of rape and sexual assault each year in the United States. Every 68 seconds, there is a victim of sexual violence. One out of every six women will be a victim of attempted rape. This stuff still happens. And sure, we don't want to talk about it. But isn't that kind of the problem? You know, I was thinking about this. If we refuse to share these kinds of stories out of the Bible, and I'll, I'll just tell you that in various ways the story's been censored. It's not included in the liturgical calendar, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> if anyone's familiar with how liturgical churches work, in the, the Hebrew faith, Jewish synagogues have their own liturgical calendar. They read through the Old Testament, usually not included. The, the liturgical calendar in churches that read Scripture every day, not included, which I'm not saying is censoring it, because, you know, like maybe you don't need to read it every year, but, it's, but it has been ignored. And maybe you've never read it. But if we refuse to share these kinds of stories, what will that say to someone who has a similar story? Is their story not welcome here either? Everyone can share their testimony but you. Statistically, there are people here who have a painful story. And if that's you and you're thinking, I don't know if church is the right place for my story. If that's you, I want you to hear me say this as clearly as I can. I believe the church is the best place for your story. In fact, if a story like this isn't welcome here, then what the hell are we doing? How the hell do we call ourselves the church if stories like this aren't allowed in our community? We are only ever the church when we are a place for everyone's story. Now, I believe this story is included in Scripture, and I want you to hear this clearly as well, to tell us one simple thing. And boy, a lot of men in this world and a lot of institutions could learn this lesson from God. I believe this story is included in Scripture and other terrible stories to tell us that God isn't one to ignore or gloss over or cover up or brush under the rug abuse. It's included right along with the great heroes of our faith, as painful as it is, because God didn't try to hide it or edit it out or manage the story or get a public relations operative to come in and really figure out how it could be told. It's in the Bible. God is terrible PR for himself, if you read the Bible. You know, you're like, really, God? That too? And God's like, no, transparency is more important than public relations. I believe that. It's in the Bible because these stories should never be censored or silenced. So let me say it again. This story is in the Bible because these stories should never be silenced. Your story, whatever it is, is welcome here. Now, you don't have to necessarily share your story. I don't want you to feel pressure. And if you do share your story, you know what? Maybe you prefer it to be anonymous, like this woman. We never told her name. Maybe her family wanted it that way, and I respect that. Maybe you're not ready. Maybe you don't want to share it publicly. You're not going to get pressure from me, but I just want you to know that you don't have to live in the shadows. What you've done or what has been done to you, you are loved, 
and there is a place here for you. Ultimately, a king would come, and he wasn't like David, and he wasn't like others. King Jesus would be born in a humble stable and grow up to die on a cross, but his treatment of women would begin to change the world. It wouldn't happen overnight, but it began a new trajectory in the entire world that we're still trying to live into. I want to bank and come and get ready as we close. I want to end with just this really uh, cool thing. There's this organization called Happy Givers. Uh, they have really kind of clever sayings, and one of them has to do with uh, uh, Jesus's relationship to women. It's a sticker and a T-shirt. So if you're, what's great about this organization is all the proceeds go to their work in Puerto Rico and in South America. So it's one of these like a social enterprise. But anyways, put, I think I put it in there. Uh, the next slide, hopefully. Yeah, that one. You might not be able to read it, but that's what it looks like. I'll read it to you. Um, and, and if you want to do a study and figure out where all these things happen, um, this is all in the Gospels. But here's Jesus' relationship to women. Compared to the story we just read here, this good news. Jesus protected women, empowered women, honored women publicly, released the voice of women, confided in women, was funded by women. Fun fact celebrated women by name, learned from women, respected women, and spoke of women as examples to follow. Our turn. Will you stand with me as we pray and uh, get ready for our closing song? God, we give you thanks for the ways in which you work in our lives. And Lord, we know that not every day can we handle the hardest parts of life, but there are some people who do not have that choice. So help us. Help us to be empathetic. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to listen. Lord, I lift up especially anyone right now in our community or in our broader community of somebody we know who's experienced abuse, whose story wasn't believed, who felt like they had to keep it a secret or live in the shadows. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for the ways in which we've perpetuated this. Forgive us and help us set the captives free, just as you promised. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, come and set us free, each one of us. In your name, amen.